Our scripture reading for today is Psalm 121. It's page 516 of your Pew Bibles. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you direct your attention to a video. Good morning. <laughs> um, so that is a video of some guys singing Psalm 121. And there's a couple things I want to say about that uh, as we get into our text this morning. The first of which is, how awesome is that video, right? <laughs> and I, the, one of the questions it raises for me is, are they like, were they at a wedding or like a lunch meeting? But at the same time, they have all this sound equipment. I don't totally understand what was going on there in that moment. But somehow they were prepared for this in the middle of uh, whatever they were doing. And then I love the guy in the back, like, so this is like, you know, Orthodox Jewish culture. And this guy's like, I finally get my DJ moment. And he's just like hitting the buttons and rocking the headphones the whole time. Now, uh, jokes aside, the, we wanted to show this video for a, a couple of reasons. The primary one uh, is we've started this series in the book of Psalms where we're looking at the Psalms of Ascents. This is a little subsection, part of the bigger book uh, of Psalms. These are songs that Hebrew pilgrims in the Old Testament time would have sung on their way to Jerusalem for one of the major festivals of the year, for Pentecost, for Tabernacles, and for Passover. And so our hope is that this uh, gives us a little bit of a sense of what it might have been like to sing these songs together in community and imagining what it was like for thousands of people to be singing that as they make their way up that hill towards Jerusalem for one of these big feasts. This is important for, uh, for us in this conversation about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, we started looking at these Psalms of Ascent a couple of weeks ago, um, and we, we're going to continue to look at them as we take breaks in our series uh, in the Gospel of Mark. But if you remember that, Psalm 120, uh, back at the beginning of the month, we said that discipleship is formation. And in particular, it's formation into a way of life. We can be discipled by anything. And whether we know it or not, whether we're intentional about it or not, there's always something that is forming us. 
And so to be a disciple of Jesus is to make the intentional choice to be formed into his way of life. Now, the question here is, okay, that's great, but what did the Psalms of Ascents, these ancient songs that people sung on these pilgrimages, what do they have to do with following Jesus, being New Testament followers of Jesus? Well, I think there are a couple of uh, of reasons why they are a good guide for us in this process. The first comes back to this idea of community. Okay, these psalms capture the communal nature of discipleship and the truth that formation always happens in community. It is not a solo process. Far too much of our discipleship, especially here in America, is much more like American Idol than what we just saw in this video, right? It's about me and my individual performance and how good am I doing. But the model that Jesus used, and again, the model that's given to us in these Psalms is a communal model for formation. It never happens alone. It always takes place in community. Now, the second way that these Psalms are a good guide is they also capture the intentional nature of discipleship. You didn't just happen to make your way to Jerusalem. Okay, this was a, a journey that required planning and then execution. And this is important for us too because a lot of times we end up drifting in our discipleship, and we're sort of formed by whatever is happening to us in the moment, whatever's happening right now. These journeys, again, three times a year helps create a structure and a rhythm, and as a result, there was this clarity and intentionality to the formation process of these Hebrew pilgrims. Then the last thing here, and we'll get to see this a little bit more as we go further into the series, but it's worth saying now, these psalms are a good guide for us because they follow a progression. There's a series of truths here, truths and practices that shape us as disciples. If you were here on April 9th, we looked at Psalm 120. It's the first in this series. And we saw that the journey begins somewhat counterintuitively in a bad place, right? This crying out in distress. And I made the analogy that uh, to making a mixtape or a playlist and how if the Psalms of Ascent are a playlist, a mixtape for this journey to Jerusalem, what a terrible track one. You don't, you don't want to start off your mixtape with a sad, weepy acoustic song, right? <laughs> you want to start off a little bit more pumped up than that. But this is where the Psalms begin. And it's so important because, as we said, it begins with recognizing this journey of discipleship begins with recognizing that we are not in a good place. We're not in a good place. The, the things that we've been looking to are not working for us anymore. And so where do we go? Well, we turn. We repent of those ways, and we begin this journey now with God. And so we're going to get into this a, a little bit more in depth today and through the rest of the series. What does this journey with God look like? Well, today's psalm that we've read, that we've heard sung by these awesome guys in this video, it forces us to ask the question, where do you go when you get stuck? When you're you know, working on a project, you're, you're, you're working through something, you're, you're trying to f figure something out, what is your default go-to in that moment when you're trying to find out something? I would guess that for a lot of us, it's our phone, right? When we get stuck, we, we pull out that phone. I'm a recent convert to the smartphone. I was a flip phone guy until last August. Finally, finally went for it. And it's amazing how quickly 
the smartphone becomes indispensable to life, right? And it's, it's great for all kinds of things. How do I get to this place? And just look it up. And Google Maps takes you right there. What's the best restaurant to eat at in this, in this restaurant? It will tell you. We're trying to teach our kids Spanish, and I don't know any Spanish, so all the time I'm like, okay, Google, what's Spanish for lettuce? And it tells me. Lechuga, by the way, in case you were curious. <laughs> so where do you go? What do you do when you get stuck? Those are a couple of sort of silly examples. But when life does get really actually hard and difficult, where we go in that moment, our first instinct in that moment tells us a lot about where we truly place our trust. Now again, back to Psalm 120, we saw the first step in the discipleship journey is saying no to the world and yes to God. And for many of us, for most of us, that moment, if we've had it, is amazing, right? It's a sort of glorious moment of I'm, I'm now beginning this journey with God, but then you have to get up the next day and the day after that and the day after that, and you begin to discover that life is still very challenging, right? Just because you're on this journey with God, it doesn't make everything automatically better. And when it gets hard, again, it raises this question of trust. Where do we really look for help when the chips are down? This is the question that Psalm 121 opens with. Verse 1, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? Now, Psalm 121, for those who are familiar with Scripture, who've been in church for a while, who've read the Psalms, for many people, this is one of the all-time favorites. People love Psalm 121. It's inspiring. It's comforting. We like to put it in worship songs. We like to put it on cheesy pieces of art like this one. You can get that online for like 10 bucks and put it up in your office, okay? <laughs> but what's fascinating is that when you dig into this psalm, there is an element of comfort here, but, uh, but that's not the main point that the author is trying to get us to see. At the time that this psalm was written and at the time that it would have been sung on these journeys to Jerusalem, there was nothing particularly special about looking to the hills. Everybody looked to the hills for help. Hills, mountains were a, a place to encounter the divine. They were seen as being closer to God, these holy, sacred spaces. And so when people got in trouble, they headed for the hills. And even in the, the specific uh, faith of the Israelites, Jerusalem was on a hill. The temple was on a hill. That's why these are called the Psalms of Ascent. People were walking up this hill to get to Jerusalem. So there's this sort of commonality here, but there's a contrast that the author of this psalm really wants us to understand, and we'll see this as we make our way through it, but let's begin with this. Hills and mountains were seen as spiritual places, but they were also known to be centers for pagan worship, for the worship of gods other than Yahweh, the God who reveals himself to Moses and the Israelites. There's a, a number of examples of this throughout Scripture. Look at 2 Kings 21. We read this. He, Manasseh, Manasseh is the king of Israel at the time that this is being written, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before 
the people of Israel. Now, what did Manasseh do that was so evil in the sight of the Lord? He rebuilt the high places. He rebuilt these places of worship on hills and mountains throughout the country. High places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal, who's one of these alternative pagan gods, and made an Asherah, which is a pole that could have been worshipped or prayed to, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Now, on the journey to Jerusalem, as these pilgrims are making their way there, they would have seen these uh, as they made their way. It's sort of like if you go on a road trip, you're driving down the five or whatever, you'll see billboards that tell you, you know, rest stop, 10 miles, get your McDonald's fix at exit 21. This is the same sort of thing, these, the, these uh, promises of help on the journey. Need protection from the sun, need a, a potion to keep you from moon madness. This is where we get our term lunacy. We'll talk more about this in just a moment. Need magical shoes to protect your feet as you walk towards Jerusalem. Take exit four in two miles. It's all there on this hill for you. Okay, so these were very real temptations, enticing these weary, nervous travelers uh, to come and to partake. Jeremiah, though, sort of lays this bare for us. He says, truly the hills are a delusion. The orgies on the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. The hills are a delusion. Where does our help come from? Now, the hills represent what we might call the human paradigm of discipleship. The human paradigm of discipleship is this idea this pattern that if I do the right things, if I follow steps A, B, and C, then something good will happen for me. If I need something, I'll just do these, I'll, I'll say the right words, I'll perform the right ritual, and I'll get what I need. It's the idea that if we pay our dues, do the right things, follow the rules, put in our time, whatever cliche you want to use there, I'll get the result that I am looking for. Again, this is the delusion of the hills, the promise of these alternative uh, gods. Need rain to water your crops? Go to this hill, beseech the rain god. Need to get pregnant? Go to this hill, make a sacrifice to the fertility god. Struggling on your journey? Head over here and pray to this Asherah. Give, give money or sacrifice a goat to Baal. Now in our day, we probably don't head up on mountains and kill goats. At least I, I don't. So I don't know about what you guys are doing, but... Obviously not as common. However, we look for help in all kinds of places, right? I mean, you go to a bookstore and one of, if not the largest section, is self-help. We look to workout plans, diets, the next app that's come out. We look to various spiritual guides all to help us on this journey. Now, most of those things are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but they can lead us into the mistake of the human paradigm of discipleship. And, it, and, and this mistake is that everything becomes very me-focused. It becomes all about me, and it's centered around the questions, am I doing enough, and am I doing it right? Am I doing enough, and am I doing it right? It's so easy to get sucked into this because it's very promising, right? Very enticing. This illusion of control. If I just do all the right steps, I'll get what I need. I'll get what I want. 
That's why this question is, is so important. This isn't just a nice inspirational verse. This is a question that cuts us right to the heart. Where does our help come from? Now, verse 2 comes in and answers very clearly and directly. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, again, we, we, we read or we sing the first couple verses of this psalm and we get this, this uh, epic picture in our mind of uh, like rugged, Baird Grills guy out in, the, out in the woods walking up this mountain and he's kind of struggling and getting discouraged and he looks up to the mountain and the clouds part and the sun is shining down on him and an eagle flies by and he's like, oh, I can do this, right? And then he like conquers whatever the challenge is that is in front of him. And that's all very nice and good. But again, it misses the truth that the psalmist wants us to understand. Looking to the hills is looking to the wrong place. Looking to the hills is looking in the wrong place. And connecting this back again to Psalm 120, the psalmist is saying, okay, I'm fed up with the ways of the world. I've said no to all that. I've repented. I've turned around. Now I'm on this journey with God towards this better place. But this journey is hard. And I'm still struggling with stuff. And all the places that I would normally turn to, all the places I would normally look for help, they aren't working for me anymore. I can't go back there. Where do I go? Where does my help come from? And again, verse 2 comes in and answers that very clearly. Our help comes from the Lord. Now, the word Lord, the name Lord, is translated from different names in Hebrew. The one used here is the name Yahweh. This very personal name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush in the Exodus story. It's the name the writer of Genesis uses in the first two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, to describe God's creative work. Yahweh said, and there was light. What this psalm is beginning to show us is that Yahweh is not just the creator of the universe, though he is that. He also is very interested in you cares about you. He's personally invested in you, and this is where our help comes from. Not the hills, but the maker of the hills. Now, again, the author's been very clear about where help comes from, and now they're going to spend the rest of this psalm giving us some pictures for what that help looks like. Look at verses 3 and 4. Yahweh will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. We need sleep. Am I right? This is one of the ways that I know God loves us. That sleep is so glorious. The older I get, the more I realize how important a good night of sleep is. I'm not in college anymore. I can't do the like all-nighter thing, stay up all night. Uh, anymore. I cannot do that. As a parent, this is even more obvious when our kids have a great night of sleep. Everything in our home is so much better by large percentage points. Okay, we need to sleep. Creatures need sleep. It's one of the ways I think actually that uh, we're reminded that God is in control of the universe. It's almost like a daily Sabbath, trusting I can check out and get my rest and everything's going to be okay. The world is going to keep turning. 
God, however, does not sleep. Now again, there's some comfort in this, right? It's really good to know that as I'm out here struggling, God is not taking a nap. But this statement is once again about creating a contrast between Yahweh and these other gods, these other options, these pagan options available to travelers on their way to Jerusalem. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. There's a great scene in this text. A little bit of background about it. This scene takes place during a time when Israel's king was Ahab. And if you remember that passage we just read from 2 Kings, Ahab was mentioned there. He was not a good guy. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And in particular, he introduced the people to worship of Baal. And so God, not pleased with the direction that Ahab has taken the country, and he uses his prophet Elijah to let Ahab and people know about this. One of the things that Elijah says is that there's going to be a drought. And we see this in 1 Kings 17.1. The drought becomes a problem. Ahab recognizes that this is a problem. He begins to seek out some, uh, some ways to solve this. And to make a long story short, the result of that seeking is a showdown between Elijah and Ahab's prophets of Baal. Elijah, all by himself, Ahab's prophets of Baal, hundreds of these guys. This is what they decide to do. Okay, I've never personally been a part of a prophetic duel, but it sounds really cool. Okay, I can't wait for my opportunity to be a part of one of these. Here's what they do. They set up two different altars, one to Yahweh, one to Baal, and they kill a bull and they put it on top of the altar. And the idea is they'll both uh, speak to their God, ask their God to uh, bring fire down from heaven on this altar. And whoever comes through on that, they'll know, okay, this is the true God and this is the God we need to turn to for help with this drought. So Ahab's guys get to go first and they carry on all morning and they do all kinds of crazy things to try to get Baal to respond. But nothing happens. There's no fire from heaven. And then we get one of the greatest lines in all of Scripture. I love this. At noon, again, after several hours of them doing their thing, Elijah mocked them, <laughs> saying, hey, maybe you should, you know, cry a little bit louder. He is a god, right? But maybe he's musing. Maybe he's deep in thought. Or maybe he's relieving himself. <laughs> that was an option. Or maybe he's on a journey, or, and here's the key part of this verse here, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Elijah's trash game is, trash talk game is so good. And he could hang with Draymond Green, I think. <laughs> now, the story ends with Yahweh dramatically sending fire to consume Elijah's altar. It's this very powerful, very clear demonstration of Yahweh's power and Baal's impotence. It reveals that Baal not engaged the same way that Yahweh is. Baal went potty and took naps like a toddler. <laughs> but Yahweh is an ever-present help in trouble. God does not take naps. He does not check out. He doesn't go for a walk and get lost in thought and forget about us. He is always there always awake, always engaged. And here's the key word in today's text. He is always keeping us. 
Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Six times in this psalm, the word keep is used. It's not a very subtle poem. (laughs) The author driving this point home with a sledgehammer, God keeps you, Yahweh keeps you, the creator of the universe, the creator of the mountains, keeps you, protects you. He is your help Don't go looking for help somewhere else. Now, going back to verse 3, there are a couple different possibilities for harm listed in this psalm. Verse 3, loose footing. We also see that heat from the sun is a danger. And then there's also this aspect of emotional distress. And again, this connects back to this idea of the moon. In that time, a lot of people saw the moon as sort of messing with your mind. Again, where we get our word lunacy from. Now, in response to these possibilities of harm, we see that God keeps our feet secure. He makes it possible for you to continue on this journey. He provides shade from the heat of the sun, and he will not allow the moon to afflict you. These are not just random things. These are not just a couple of, oh, we'll just put this in there to, you know, inspire and comfort the people who will read this. No, these are very intentional things. The sun and moon were seen as deities. They were gods that could be worshipped on the hills and mountains on the road to Jerusalem. Gods you could look to for your help. But as the psalm says, these gods don't actually want to help you. That's the word there. They want to strike you. They want to overcome you. If you know anything about some of the the pagan worship that was going on in the Old Testament, you know that these gods demanded more and more and more. You constantly had to appease them. And even if you did, even if you did all the right things, followed all the right steps, said all the right words, even then they may not help you out. They might be asleep. They might be going potty. They might not be that into you. I don't know. But Yahweh... Yahweh is with you. Six times the author uses the word keep. Five times the author names Yahweh. Again, not wanting us to miss this truth. Yahweh keeps. Yahweh keeps. Yahweh keeps. Understanding the witness of God is critical to our discipleship in the way of Jesus Far too many of us embark on this journey thinking we need to do these things, whatever they, whatever they might be, whatever the program might be, reading the Bible or praying or whatever. We need to do this discipleship process so that we get closer to God. But discipleship is not something that we do to get closer to Jesus. It's something we do with him. You don't have to go looking for him. Jesus' last words, in fact, were, I am with you always. Even to the end of the age, you don't have to go on a journey to find God. God is with you on this journey. Which leads us to the end of the psalm. It's this great statement of confidence. Verses 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. 
Now, verse 7 and others like it sometimes get misinterpreted to read that nothing bad is ever going to happen to us, right? Believe in God and all your problems will magically go away. And I hope this hasn't been your experience, but I know many people who have been manipulated by this kind of thought. Oh, things are going bad in your life? Well, you must not be doing the right thing. You must not be that close to God. Your faith must not be that big. But the promise of this psalm, the promise of Scripture is not that everything is going to go great for us, but rather that no evil forces can separate you from God. This is the promise of preservation in the face of evil, not the promise of the absence of evil. Discipleship is not an escape from the challenges of the world. Rather, it's moving through this world with confidence. Confidence that the same God who created the heavens and the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, and mountains, that same God loves you and keeps you and is with you no matter what through everything. Through tragedy, through cancer, through betrayal, through the everyday mundane kinds of things like getting cut off on the freeway, like your kids disobeying, like frustrations at work. He's with you through your difficulties in marriage. He's with you through addiction. He's with you through depression. Through it all, God is with you. In all of it, the psalm says, you're coming and going now and forever. Faith is not a precarious affair or game of chance. It is the solid, secure experience of life with God, with Yahweh, with the Creator. It's this knowledge of our security that Moses spoke over the people of Israel. We use this text a lot as our benediction to close our services. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is the truth Jesus prayed over his disciples and over anyone who is a disciple of him. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. This is the truth that Paul encourages us with in his letter to the Romans, where he says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else that I've left out of this list, Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We can move through the challenges of life with great confidence that God is with us. The great mistake we make in this process called discipleship is thinking that in the midst of whatever we're going through, especially something difficult, that God is not there. That God has forgotten me. We fall into the trap of, of thinking that God's interest in us waxes and wanes in response to our spiritual temperature. I'm feeling it right now. God must be close to me. Not feeling it right now. Man, God probably is off doing whatever. No. 
That is, again, the human paradigm of discipleship fueled by that question, how am I doing? I love this quote from Bill Hall. He says, the heart of hell is a soul focused only on itself and its own needs at the expense of others. It's very unlikely we will experience much joy or abundance if we're constantly monitoring, evaluating, bemoaning, or pridefully exulting in how poorly or how well we are doing. He goes on to say, grace is so hard. It is an offense to our survival mechanisms. He might say it this way, it is an offense to every other hill that we've gone looking for help at. An offense to every system of reward and punishment by which we've survived life. We are simply unready and untrained for grace, and yet grace is the life that Jesus invites us into. It's how God works. It's how the kingdom of God operates. So as we close here, a couple of questions. What are those survival mechanisms? What are those hills that you've been going to looking for help? Do you really trust God to keep you, to be your help? Maybe another way of saying it is, do you trust the grace of the creator, or are you trying to do this on your own by working really hard? Where does your help come from? Today's psalm, Psalm 121, is this powerful reminder that we don't journey alone and we don't journey on our own power. God delights in you, God loves you, and he is with you. No matter what is happening, no matter what you are going through, God is with you. Maybe even more importantly than that, God wants to be with you. And there's nothing that can separate us from his love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible promise that runs so counter to how the world normally works. Everything else tells us we have to achieve, we have to work harder, we have to do more. And yet your kingdom operates on this truth, this principle of grace, that it's all a gift. And it can be really hard to, to move into that place and to live from that place. And so I pray that this morning we spend a little bit of time examining that question, where our help comes from, that we'd be able to recognize that some of the places we turn to for help are not actually all that helpful. Help us to know in a new and fresh way that you truly are keeping us. You are with us. You are our help. What an incredible truth that the creator of the universe cares about us personally. Help us to trust your grace that that is enough that we don't need to do any more or add any more to that. And then, Father, help us to live into the confidence that nothing can separate us from you and from your love for us. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.